Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the University of New Brunswick. Today, it's my pleasure to interview Virginia Torrey and Thomas Telfer about their co-authored book, Debt and Federalism, Landmark Cases in Canadian Bankruptcy and Insolvency Law, 1894 to 1937, published as part of the Landmark Cases in Canadian Law series by the University of British Columbia Press in 2021. Virginia Torrey is the editor-in-chief of the Banking and Finance Law Review. She is a former associate professor at the Faculty of Law, University of Manitoba, where she taught bankruptcy and insolvency and Canadian legal history. She is the author of Reinventing Bankruptcy Law, A History of the Company's Creditor Arrangement Act. Dr. Torrey holds JD and LLM degrees from Osgoode Hall Law School and a PhD from the University of Kent. Thomas Telfer is a professor of law at Western University. His teaching and research interests include bankruptcy law, commercial law, and legal history. He is the author of Ruin and Redemption, A Struggle for Canadian Bankruptcy Law, 1867 to 1919. He is the co-editor-in-chief of the Canadian Business Law Journal. From 2018 to 2022, he was a teaching fellow at the Centre for Teaching and Learning at Western, where he had developed a course called Mindfulness and the Legal Profession, as well as developing other mental wellness initiatives for law students and lawyers. Virginia and Tom, thanks for joining me today to talk about your book. Thank you for the invitation, Nicole. It's great to be here. Virginia, this volume is part of the Landmark Cases in Canadian Law series. Can you tell us how you came to write this book together and how you selected the four landmark cases included in the book? Yeah, certainly. Um, Well, I think credit goes to Tom, who I think floated the idea first. Um, And I think we modestly thought it would be a paper and it ended up being a book, as these things sometimes go. So um, we, we both are legal historians and researching actively in the area. Tom was actually the external examiner on my PhD thesis, which was on legal history. Uh, so it was at that time that we first kind of came to know about each other. And um, I think he was sort of interested in this LaRue case. And I you know, was interested in the CCAA and the FCAA. And um, he was interested in voluntary assignments. And we started thinking about how these cases together actually told us a lot about the contours of bankruptcy law within the Canadian federalist framework. Uh, so the idea for a book uh, was born. And we thought UBC Press's landmark cases series seemed like a logical fit, although we had to make a bit of a pitch to them because they were thinking one case would support a whole book and some cases would support a whole book. It's just that those aren't bankruptcy cases. <laughs> so bankruptcy cases tend to uh, tend to not capture the public interest the same way. Some of these in our in our book were quite obscure and didn't really even attract a lot of attention at the time. But together, they they kind of forged the federal power at this sort of critical moment in uh, Canadian history over about a 40-year time span. So so that's sort of how we came to uh, to write the book. And they were like the only four federalism cases about bankruptcy in that time span. And it kind of straddled sort of the 19th century and the 20th century. So Tom has done a lot of work in the 19th century 
legal history in Canada, and I've done a lot uh, in kind of the early 1900s up to the Great Depression. So it just seemed like a natural fit for our interests, and we felt there would be um, a story to tell there. Tom, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with bankruptcy law, can you tell us about the fundamental purposes of bankruptcy and insolvency law? And can you describe generally how bankruptcy law has evolved in Canada? Yes, the Supreme Court of Canada has recognized on a number of occasions that bankruptcy law has two fundamental purposes. First is the equitable distribution of the debtor's assets to creditors. Bankruptcy law is a single proceeding in which all unsecured creditors submit a claim to the trustee in bankruptcy who makes a distribution to creditors. And bankruptcy law, through its stay of proceedings, prevents multiple lawsuits against the bankrupt and resolves things in a collective manner in a single proceeding. And without bankruptcy law, there would simply be chaos. And the second purpose of bankruptcy law is to provide a fresh start for individuals through the bankruptcy discharge. And the discharge will release the debtor's debt so the debtor is able to rehabilitate and become a productive member of society again. But bankruptcy law proved to be controversial in late 19th century Canada, and many objected to the discharge feature of bankruptcy law. And a common theme in late 19th century Canada was that a debtor's that a debtor had a moral obligation to repay all debts. And that was inconsistent with the bankruptcy discharge. So in terms of the history of bankruptcy law in the country, I can say quite briefly that Parliament enacted statutes in 1869 and 1875, but within five years, Parliament made a decision to repeal the national bankruptcy law. And Canada did not have a, a of national law for nearly 40 years until 1919 when Parliament enacted a permanent bankruptcy statute. And between that period, or the period between 1880 and 1919, the provinces started enacting debtor-creditor legislation, and this created a constitutional controversy as it became necessary for the Privy Council to determine whether provincial law dealing with insolvent debtors was valid or whether it interfered with the federal bankruptcy law power, and that led to the first landmark case in 1894. Virginia, can you describe the significance of the four cases in the book and how do, how do the cases fit together? Yeah, so uh, the four cases are, are significant because we move from, you know, at the beginning of the book, a time period where there's no federal bankruptcy laws, Tom alluded to, and provinces are enacting legislation to try to deal with what, what do you do when someone's over-indebted? Um, and that's how we get the voluntary assignments case. So it's it's a case where there's like a vacuum insofar as bankruptcy law is concerned and provincial efforts to fill that void to meet commercial needs as well as the needs of debtors. Uh, and by the end, you know, we, through, through all of those cases where we land is uh, at a place where we have something resembling today's modern idea about what bankruptcy law stands for. And so each the, the cases fit together because each one hammers out some key principle that comes to underlay the modern bankruptcy and insolvency power. So what's interesting with voluntary assignments, it's provincial legislation, but where we uh, land after the court uh, decides the case is that it can stand. And even though it's sort of a voluntary scheme, there's no discharge, uh, we kind of get the idea that the discharge is really central to bankruptcy, but also that there could be some ancillary kind of voluntary method 
that uh, can be used to restructure debts. Um, the next uh, case is the LaRue case, uh, and this is that you know kind of tension between Quebec and Ontario, which I know Tom will speak to a bit later. And what's significant about this is we start to get the inkling that even if a debt is secured, um, it might still come under federal bankruptcy power. So federal law might supersede uh, a security created under the Civil Code of Quebec. And that's still kind of a an isolated and niche uh, situation because not every province has a civil code or has uh, the equivalent kind of security instrument. But we start to get this sense that federal law can override provincial law in some areas, which is terribly significant because this is sort of stemming from the Bankruptcy Act of 1919, this first permanent bankruptcy statute that we have. And now we're starting to see some conflict with these longer standing provincial approaches to dealing with the same problem. Just because you don't have bankruptcy law doesn't mean the, the need for it goes away necessarily. Um, and then we move into two kind of really peculiar and interesting cases in the Great Depression, uh, which are the Farmers Creditors Arrangement Act and the Companies Creditors Arrangement Act. The Companies Creditors Arrangement Act is enacted first. It attracts very little attention outside of kind of commercial uh, and banking circles. And it's essentially uh, the continuation of a provincial remedy that's been enshrined in federal law. So, you know, like copy paste out of uh, provincial law and put it into federal law. So everyone thinks it's ultra virus. There's no way this is valid legislation. So the government refers it um, to constitutional reference and much to everyone's surprise, it, it uh, withstands con constitutional reference. And that kind of gives parliament the... Uh, the opportunity it needs to enact a similar statute, but one that's arguably much further reaching in the Farmers Creditors Arrangement Act. And this is designed to help insolvent farmers, while the former was designed to help insolvent businesses. Um, and so the, the, these two cases really go hand in hand. The Companies Creditors Arrangement Act is quite significant because it affirms the idea that secured creditor rights can be compromised under federal law. So building on the LaRue uh, decision and it uh, also has this sort of compulsory element. So you, before you had to kind of contract to have something like this apply to your company, uh, this is like a law in the books that any company can conceivably access. And then the Farmers Creditors Arrangement Act goes further because it contemplated involuntary uh, compromises. So, you know, you could be a creditor in a, in a farm insolvency and you might just be like picked out and said your claim is no longer valid. So it's a much further reaching statute, but essentially is achieving the same thing. Uh, and this one's significant because it goes all the way to the Privy Council, which the CCAA didn't. And so as a result of those two cases going hand in hand, we get the idea that you can have uh, legislative debt compromise legislation that compels creditors, including secured creditors, to participate. And using the power of the discharge mentioned before to essentially expunge the claims that you know aren't included in the compromise. So legitimately, these can be eliminated. And again, this is not something anyone has to contract for, which used to be the case. It's now federal law. Uh, and so that that's sort of the kind of tracing the path of all, all of the um, main principles coming from the legislation. So from a time period, just to flash back at the beginning, no bankruptcy legislation. It's all provincial. By the end, basically everything that was provincial law has been imported into federal insolvency law, given the power of things that only the feds can do, like the discharge, um, and made it applicable throughout the country. So it's essentially the maturation of a modern federal bankruptcy power in a space of about 40 years. That's a great way to lead into the next question I have for Tom, which is, could you describe the bankruptcy power under the Canadian Constitution before these four landmark cases and then afterwards? 
And then how did the changes in federal bankruptcy power impact provincial jurisdiction? Yeah, thank you for the question. Constitutional questions that we now take for granted were very much in play from Confederation to the Great Depression. And the question is, in creating um, a federal bankruptcy regime, how far can Parliament go in terms of interfering with provincial law? And conversely, if a provincial regime purports to regulate insolvency matters, is that a valid exercise of property and civil rights jurisdiction? And so before these landmark cases came out, there was a great deal of uncertainty uh, in terms of the scope of the federal power and the scope of provinces to deal with insolvent debtors. In 1880, a Privy Council decision ruled in favor of a strong bankruptcy power, but it was uncertain about the scope of this power once Parliament repealed the federal law. And the Dominion's decision to repeal federal bankruptcy law created very, created a lot of uncertainties because as the federal government got out of the business of regulating bankruptcy law, the provinces started enacting debtor-creditor legislation. And there was a great deal of scope about, a great deal of uncertainty about the scope of the federal bankruptcy power until the Privy Council decided its decision, the first landmark case in the book of 1894. But before that decision, the Ontario courts could simply not agree on whether provincial debtor-creditor law infringed upon the federal bankruptcy law. And when we looked at commercial law journals commenting on the divided nature of the Ontario cases, they were simply concerned about the 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 chaos because nobody knew about uh, how what the result was going to be of an ultimate decision of the Privy Council. And the, the Ontario government was so exasperated, they actually referred the issue to the Ontario Court of Appeal. That went up to the Privy Council. And the Privy Council ultimately re- ruled that a provision of the Ontario statute was intravaries and valid, but in an obiter statement, the court described the federal bankruptcy power in a very robust and broad way, and that that obiter statement would form the basis of future landmark cases. That robust interpretation of the federal bankruptcy power had an impact on the province's ability to pass legislation to protect insolvent debtors. So after these landmark cases, provinces in the 40s, 50s, and 60s started enacting um, debt moratorium legislation. And all of these, in a trilogy of cases, all of these provincial measures were struck down. And I encourage potential readers of our second book uh, to read that because it has a substantial impact on the provincial ability to regulate insolvent debtors. Virginia, there are many fascinating historical actors in the book, including the lawyers who argued the cases and the judges who wrote the decisions. In my opinion, one of the most intriguing people is uh, Chief Justice Lyman Pordeaux. Can you tell us a little bit about his approach to bankruptcy law and how his personal circumstances might be relevant to how he saw these issues? 
With pleasure. Uh, he's a very fascinating character. Um, paradoxical in many ways and hard to figure out. Some of, some of uh, you know, what we can do in the book is merely speculative because we're not inside the mind of, of the judge. But he was a Chief Justice of Canada for a long time. He's the longest serving Chief Justice. He also served on the Privy Council for a long time. So he was influenced by this British style of judging at a time when the Privy Council was still the, the court of last resort for, for Canada. Um, and he was very formalistic and took almost without exception a narrow and, and very literal approach to uh, interpreting language. And he was very well regarded by the Privy Council. Um, and, and there was sort of a lot of, there was a lack of faith in the ability of the Supreme Court of Canada to decide cases kind of well in the, in the minds of the law lords. And the fact that Duff was there really gave the Supreme Court legitimacy in their view. Um, now, all that being said, you know, I don't, I don't think a modern reader would have uh, quite, quite the same positive view uh, on Duff's very formalistic approach to interpreting law. Um, and he's, a, he's really a paradox to understand. Um, you know, he, he had a very, like, narrow approach to interpreting things. And so his judgments in these cases that, that gave the bankruptcy power such a wide uh, interpretation and a wide reading are really out of sync with how he tended to interpret uh, federal legislation. And this is, a, you know, kind of uh, at a time when, you know, provincial rights are kind of interpreted really broadly and, and federal powers tend to be interpreted really narrowly. And these cases are the opposite of that. Uh, and so Duff was involved with the LaRue case as well as the CCAA and FCAA references. So he had a he left a, a big mark there. Now, the, the FCAA case was also part of the Canadian New Deal, and it's curiously the only New Deal statute that survives um, to, through these appeals and unscathed, right, like as an affirmation of the federal power. And it's easy to think, like, well, it must have been the Depression, and therefore, you know, judges were sympathetic to that, but that doesn't really account for the fact that, you know, unemployment insurance doesn't pass muster and, and bankruptcy does. So it's hard to kind of revert to these sort of broad external factors. Um, and, you know, in Duff's, when he reaches his, his judgment in favor of both pieces of legislation, like it's strained, right? He ignores really important facts. Like he ignores the fact that the CCAA can bind secured creditors. That, that is what's significant about the statute. And that's clear in the factums and it's just glossed over as if it's a non-factor. Um, now, interestingly, and this is where we get into the realm of speculation, Duff, you know, was hopeless at managing his own finances and, um, you know, kind of somewhat characteristic for like this sort of English upper class approach to things. Like he would place orders with a London tailor for 10 years and until he got around to paying the bill like a decade later. Uh, he also lost, had to sell his house. He lost his, lost his life insurance policies, we're told. Uh, and basically only when his sister took him in hand and managed his finances could he kind of be made to cope. And this is, you know, he's, he's earning a steady income as a judge, but it's, it's not the income you'd earn as a practicing lawyer. So, but it's steady through the depression. And so it's interesting that his inability to manage his own finances uh, coincides with the fact that he has a hugely expansive idea of the federal bankruptcy power, which is otherwise out of keeping. So it's difficult to you know, draw any firm conclusions, but it does make you wonder if he some, somehow empathized with, with the debtors who were finding themselves in difficult circumstances. Um, and then a further difficulty is like, he's a very, you know, he's very, um, like his style is like very arid. Um, and yet he's like, 
from a policy perspective, these cases that he's affirming as federal bankruptcy insolvency, like you know, valid, are like extremely progressive bankruptcy statutes for their day. I mean, the FCAA is the most progressive bankruptcy statute Canada has ever had. And it's, as far as I, I know, the most progressive st- example of, of bankruptcy legislation um, worldwide. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's it's really out there. And and we have this sort of strict and literal judge who can't manage his own finances as the one who's giving it the seal of approval. Um, and then it doesn't get overturned at the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which sort of lends weight to this hypothesis that maybe the law lords are just very sympathetic toward debtors because they do overrule other, you know, progressive social policies designed to help Canadians uh, in those in those New Deal references. Um, so he's he's a he's a very interesting uh, parad- paradox, uh, and it's hard to understand um, uh, how he he kind of arrived. Uh, at the conclusions he arrived at, and there's no kind of notes that I'm aware of that would maybe shed light on his personal thinking about it. Um, and he kind of, his style of judging kind of maintained consistency throughout his time on the bench. Uh, but one possible explanation we explore a little bit in the book is that Duff's sort of, you know, innate liberalism, because he was a liberal um member of the Liberal Party, uh, sometimes clashed with this legal formalism that was, you know, the, the sort of sought after way to judge at the time. And this led to kind of these kind of conflicted or, or difficult to understand uh, lines of reasoning uh, that led to some anomalous results, I have to say. I, 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 I struggle, you know, to understand how, how the court arrived at, at the decisions they arrived at in those CCAA and FCA references. Like, I don't know that we would Today we would arrive at that because our, our idea about bankruptcy has changed, but they really they really shocked the legal community at the time that they were passed, uh, and even for decades after, it was believed the court got it wrong. Um, so you know this sort of foreshadows the next book, but there's a series of more legislation uh, of Western provinces basically just not accepting that that certain things are now federal and trying to enact things provincially. Uh, and unfortunately, those all get struck down too. Um, but it, it goes to show that, like, th- there was sort of a broadly felt uh, view that these cases, you know, they were such a departure from what we thought bankruptcy was, they couldn't possibly have been correctly decided. Tom, the Royal Bank of Canada versus LaRue case is about the validity of remedies available under the Civil Code of Quebec. To what extent does this case highlight the tension between Quebec and the federal government over issues? beyond bankruptcy. Yes, LaRue was decided in 1928. It was the first uh, Privy Council decision to interpret the new Bankruptcy Act of 1919. And when that act was passed, there was assumption that this would become a permanent statute, but there was a countervailing uh, sentiment, especially coming from Quebec, that Quebec doubted the ability of of parliament to pass legislation. The the claim was that the Bankruptcy Act interfered with Quebec provincial law and in particular provisions of the Quebec Civil Code. And to show you the extent of the division over the Bankruptcy Act, in 1922, the National Assembly of Quebec adopted a resolution inviting the federal government to revoke the Bankruptcy Act. In the debate in the National Assembly, the Premier of Quebec, Louis-Alexandre Tachereau, rose in the National Assembly and in his speech 
attacked the bankruptcy statute, claiming it was ultra-virus. He said the bankruptcy statute set aside provisions of the Quebec Civil Code, and he claimed he would do everything in his power to have the Bankruptcy Act set aside and have the province return to the provisions of the Civil Code and once again be master at home. But this tension between Ottawa and Quebec over the bankruptcy power was only part of a larger story. The concerns raised by Quebec were consistent with traditional legal thought in Quebec. There was a, a great law review article by Silvio Normand, who studied the Revue de Droit articles published during the 1920s. And he demonstrates that in those articles, there was a dominant theme of protecting the integrity of civil law. Quebec authors opposed the unification of Canadian law, appeals to the um, Privy Council, and they also opposed the spread of federal statute. Now, this provincial rights perspective that ultimately surfaced started with a private dispute between the Royal Bank and trustees in bankruptcy in Quebec. The Royal Bank sought to assert a judicial hypothec in, in a bankruptcy, and a judicial hypothec is a provincial remedy under the Quebec Civil Code that the trustee refused to recognize. The bank claimed a special priority, and the trustee says, no, the bank, you're not entitled to that uh, special priority because of the provisions of the Bankruptcy Act. And what happened in that private dispute soon escalated into a constitutional battle with the Attorney General of Quebec intervening, arguing in the case that the provision of the Bankruptcy Act was ultra vires as it failed to recognize provincial property rights. And in fact, when this case went before two lower courts in Quebec, they both decided in favor of the province. And even a dissenting member of the Supreme Court of Canada was willing to recognize uh, the provincial priority in a bankruptcy. The Supreme Court of Canada ruled against the province, and that was upheld by the Privy Council, affirming a broad reading of the federal bankruptcy statute, ensuring the equality of treatment of all judgment creditors in a bankruptcy. And the reaction in Quebec to that decision was not positive. In 1928, a review de droit published an article by a Quebec lawyer, and the article is entitled Demolished, with a Quebec lawyer condemning the Privy Council decision in La Rue. And I'll just read a brief quote from that article. This is a disastrous, literally inexplicable decision that made a much broader blow in the barrier of protection that surrounded our provincial law. It was already quite damaged. It falls, of course, now into ruins and no longer offers any security. How one could place trust in it. And so there was a, a really negative reaction to the LaRue decision, which symbolized the, the broader dispute between Quebec and Ottawa over, over legal matters. Virginia, you've already talked a little bit about this, but I'd like to ask a, a follow-up. During the 1930s, the Canadian Supreme Court struck down a series of progressive federal statutes designed to address and ameliorate the effects of the Great Depression. 
the Companies Creditors Arrangement Act and the Farmers Creditors Arrangement Act were exceptions to this. Can you explain why this legislation was considered constitutional when the other New Deal legislation did not survive judicial scrutiny? Thanks for the question. I don't know that I can answer that. I've puzzled and puzzled, uh, and it's... um, you know, it could just be one of those things that, that sometimes accidents happen. And, and once it's decided a certain way, you know, there's a sort of a, a path dependence to that. So the, because the CCAA reference was decided the way it was, it was certainly easier to reach the same conclusion in the Farmers Creditors Arrangement Act. But the, the CCAA reference, uh, in that reference, Justice Dove fudged the crucial point, which was that it, it subjected secured creditors to bankruptcy while something they'd never... Uh, been subjected to before, and and he did that by just ignoring the secured creditor rights issue. Um, so it's diff- it's difficult to square. It could be a judicial slip up. It could be uh, the the fact that judges were sympathetic to debtors, although that that explanation is challenging, just because the other New Deal references um, weren't weren't decided in a way that advanced the social policies they were purporting to uh, advance. So, so it's a cha- it's a challenge to explain, and I think that's just sort of a reminder that when when doing legal history work, uh, sometimes it's hard. Like sometimes you can't really explain things. There's accidents of timing. There's sort of idiosyncrasies in the way events unfold, and and then they can have a bit of a self perpetuating quality that can kind of underscore the significance of that point of departure. So we do see a real point of departure there. Uh, one which I think our bankruptcy system is all the better for. Uh, because it would be very difficult to have a modern bankruptcy system if if all secured claims were were exempt from it. Um, but it's it's one of those puzzles that, uh, for the time being anyway, remains unsolved. That's definitely one of the more fascinating parts of the book. I'll go back over to Tom now to ask him, if Canada is one of the most decentralized federal states in the world, and yet we have one of the most centralized bankruptcy and insolvency systems, is this the direct result of those landmark cases explored in the book, and is that a good thing? Really, to complete the story about the strong bankruptcy power, I'd encourage everyone to read our second book, which we're currently working on. And whether or not it's a good thing to have a uh, centralized bankruptcy system depends on your point of view or on whether the provinces should have some ambit to protect insolvent debtors to respond to the local needs of their own residents. On the other side, on the federal side, the argument runs that there needs to be uniformity of bankruptcy law and that provincial diversity of legislation is disadvantageous for national creditors. And as we've mentioned in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, a series of provincial laws designed to protect insolvent debtors were struck down. Now, I must say that these were creative statutes, innovative statutes, designed to protect debtors from their creditors through either a debt adjustment or a moratorium on creditors. These innovations came from the provincial sphere, not the federal sphere. And in fact, the Alberta Orderly Payment of Debts Act was struck down by the Supreme Court of Canada, but then Parliament essentially copied and pasted the provincial statute into the Federal Bankruptcy Act. And so in this instance, a provincial innovation influenced provincial law, and perhaps that's a a good thing. 
Virginia, I know you're planning a second volume and you're already working on it. As a follow-up to Thomas's answer, I'd like to ask you about the evolution of bankruptcy after the period covered in the current volume. Do the trends and themes explored in your first book carry forward or are there significant departures? Thanks for the question. I would say that at a macro level, the themes and, and trends definitely carry forward. Uh, we've alluded to it already, but you know, essentially the, the the two last cases in the first book are you know so kind of off the wall from a from a traditionalist's point of view that the provinces just don't really accept it and they keep enacting legislation provincially in an effort to to help debtors within their borders, in particular Alberta and Saskatchewan. Uh, so those those then become constitutional cases and they're challenged or they're referred for reference. And in the end, the, the decisions are all in favor of a broad federal bankruptcy power. So the provinces are really out of luck there, uh, culminating with the, the Orderly Payments of Debt Act that Tom just mentioned. Now, there is one outlier. And just, just like uh, in the first book where we had the kind of first case voluntary assignments, it's a bit of an outlier and it was a bit of... Uh, creative thinking to see how we could weave that in. In the second book, too, the, our first case from 1939, Lador and Bennett, is another outlier. And this is a case where the Ontario legislature enacted uh, a statute to deal with the strained municipal finances of five small municipalities uh, by amalgamating them and rescheduling the debt into what is now the city of Windsor, Ontario. And that statute is challenged. And ultimately, the court holds that the Ontario legislation is valid. So it's the, it's the one instance where provincial legislation is validated. And it's largely because it's not kind of a bankruptcy statute proper that anyone can access. It's really, it's dealing with insolvency, but they find that this is within the municipal power of the provinces to deal with. So again, that's a bit of an outlier. And we're still working through how we might you know, connect that <laughs> to the rest of the cases. Uh, you know, one one theme that does emerge, though, is is just the sense that uh, all the other statutes are, are Saskatchewan and Alberta statutes that get struck down, and yet this sort of eastern Ontario statute is upheld. So maybe just variable treatment of of legislation depending on whether it emanates from the western provinces or from Ontario, uh, and just the kind of unique nature of it. Um, but at a broad level, I see what I see in the second volume thematically is we have this sort of modern bankruptcy power by the end of the, the 30s and 40s from the first book. And it, it gets uh, reinforced through a lot of these cases, I would say. And the sort of era of provinces being able to enact stuff provincially to deal with insolvent debtors is really fading away the, the further we get into the 20th century. So sort of a world apart. Uh, nevertheless, as Tom mentioned, there's a lot of innovation that happens at the provincial level. And that allowing there to be innovation and allowing that to influence federal lawmaking can be a very good thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a, a fact that, you know, in, in the up until the 30s and even into the 50s and 60s, like farming is a much larger uh, uh, a much bigger factor for constituents in the prairie provinces than it is for for those for the provinces in the east, and you really see that the needs of farmers are quite different, and what they're asking for is different, and they're very engaged politically, and that's leading to these statutes. So, that that kind of experimentation and just um, kind of political activism is not necessarily a bad thing. I think some of the policies 
probably it's probably good to tone them down a little. And that tends to happen when it gets enacted into federal law, because there have been concerns historically at certain points in time that they would just it would be impossible to borrow money in the in the in the prairie provinces as a farmer because of how uh, difficult it is to enforce the debt if you're a creditor. So sometimes that toning down is helpful. But I think in a sense, we have a very centralized system, but in another sense, it's benefited from a lot of uh, sort of policy experimentation at the provincial level. And I think the way that that has ended up being harmonized or drawn from and inspired federal law has probably been a good thing on the whole. Um, The orderly payments uh, reference and the statute it was based on that Tom mentioned that gets worked into federal law ultimately is like a, a forerunner to what we would today call a proposal, which is instead of going bankrupt, you have a compromise with your creditors. So it's it was actually sort of farsighted uh, in the 60s to have something like that. But uh, there, there tends not to be a lot of parliamentary interest in lawmaking in the bankruptcy space. They're, they're very slow and reluctant. Uh, to come to the table and to propose anything novel. It's very rare when you get a novel proposal from Parliament. So it's usually pressure building up at the at the provincial level that leads to that kind of uh, reform at the federal level. And I would say that that probably carries through um, more or less to present day, probably with some big exceptions here and there. But um, that's sort of getting beyond the scope of our second volume. And now a question for both of you. You're both legal historians. How does this influence your work on bankruptcy and corporate commercial law? Yeah, thank you. I would say that my work as a legal historian has influenced both my teaching and research. Uh, So when I teach bankruptcy law, I always begin with a historical overview in terms of uh, the evolution of the law. I'm a real believer in trying to explain why the law changed when it did. As a legal historian, I also offer a course called The Legal History of Business Law, and we cover landmark cases in contracts, torts, property law, and corporate law, and also look at the evolution of insolvency statutes, history of fraud, and immigration. But my interest in as a legal historian, also influences in terms of how I approach contemporary bankruptcy issues. So I recently completed an article on the doctrine of equitable subordination. And in that article, I examine the history of equitable powers in bankruptcy law to provide context for a recent Ontario Court of Appeal decision. I would add uh, that I I find... Having studied the history of something gives you a great depth of understanding uh, for how the law uh, exists today, how how we got the law we got, why we didn't get something else. I think it also really brings to light and all the historical anachronisms that you can find in a long statute like the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act um, that that ne- haven't necessarily been updated. Uh, certain certain exemptions or you know anything with a monetary limit you know, has, has with inflation become absurdly out of sync with modern society. So sometimes there is a academic impulse to want to clean that up and, and make it a little more relevant today. I think I think watching how political debates and, and then legal challenges have played out gives you a real sense of the different vested interests that there can be in an area like bankruptcy, where it's zero sum, there's not enough assets to go around. Um, and then just the, the sort of breadth of knowledge that comes from having looked at 
different iterations of the law over time uh, can sometimes spark novel ideas about solving present day problems by drawing on uh, historical examples or, or drawing inspiration from those examples in terms of how to how to tackle what seems like a novel challenge. So sometimes history doesn't always repeat itself, but it rhymes as the saying goes. So I definitely see echoes, echoes of historical um, situations in the present day problems in the area. Virginia and Tom, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about your book. I look forward to the next volume and our next interview. My guests today have been Virginia Torrey and Thomas Telfer. They are the co-authors of Debt and Federalism, Landmark Cases in Canadian Bankruptcy and Insolvency Law, 1894 to 1937, published as part of the Landmark Cases in Canadian Law series by the University of British Columbia Press in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We always appreciate likes and shares on social media. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on March 31st, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team.